Hello and welcome to One Track Mind, a podcast about the real issues, forces and innovations shaping the future of sport. On this week's show, we're back with the second of our two-part series on how injury prediction actually could work. If you missed part one, well, there is probably something in this for you regardless, but I'd recommend going back and starting there, as a lot of what will be discussed on this episode will make a lot more sense and be of more value if you've listened to that first. So in the introduction to part one, I described a futuristic, aspirational scenario around what a successful injury prediction system could look like. But that isn't going to come about by chance. So on today's episode, I want to really look at the entire pipeline, all the way from how the data is collected for this problem, through to how the predictions are generated, acted on, and then evaluated. So with that out of the way, let's get straight into it. First, let's start with the data. The first point I'm going to make on data is around its quality. We discussed last episode that presently in practice, a whole range of modifiable and non-modifiable factors are being used to inform injury prediction models presently. These data can range from everything from medical records to metrics derived from wearable technologies, self-report data to test results and practitioner evaluations. Now, of course, it almost goes without saying that as much as possible, we need this data to be high quality. But it's much more than that. If we're going to really achieve viable injury prediction, then the data needs to be retrievable and accessible in near real time, as well as being continuously measured. Because if we want our system to function near real time, which is the only way it can be of real use, then a lot of the metrics that inform it need to do the same. And obviously that's not totally the case right now. Sure, we can access data from things like wearable technologies in real time, but a lot of the internal functions of the body that we might want information on still require lab equipment or tests that can't be conducted in training or competition, at least not yet. On the continuous measurement element, to use a basic example, even something as simple as an athlete's age is often represented in analysis as a whole number. And if we read the literature in this area, we often see that even when data has been measured continuously and reported on a continuous scale, it's then arbitrarily categorized into different groups and this detail is lost. So in summary, we should be moving towards as high frequency data as possible for the metrics that we collect. Some moving from perhaps daily or weekly measurement all the way down to being measured by the second. And of course, this raises computational capacity issues. The more detailed data that we collect, the slower it will be to process, analyze, and report, even with the massive advancements to computing that have occurred and that we'll continue to see. But if we can achieve it, it will allow us to obtain more detailed insights into how certain factors really behave. For example, by knowing an athlete's movement to the levels of millimeters and degrees in near real time, allows for far greater precision in our prescription and interventions, not only in injury, but a whole host of other applications as well. Now, the second point around data also sounds somewhat obvious, and it's that we can only model what we measure. As is almost always the case in any modeling, we should start with an idea in mind of which data a perfect model would incorporate, all the while knowing that this is unattainable. So we should determine how big the gap is between that unattainable perfect model and what we think we can feasibly achieve. 
And as discussed in part one, it's up to us to decide whether this model is close enough to this perfect model in order for it to be useful. Say, for example, that we believe in order to obtain a comprehensive view of injury, we should include measurement of an athlete's psychology, or for instance, the real-time capture of physiological factors that I just mentioned. And let's say for various reasons we cannot collect this information either validly enough or quickly enough to be used. We then have to decide on whether the model is good enough to use, despite all the while being aware of these gaps. Now, the analyst listening in might say that this decision can be informed by simply looking at the quantitative performance of a model. For example, if the model is somewhat accurate, then there is no need to focus on anything other than the features that were included. But I would argue that's not the case, particularly here, and that these numbers can also mislead. It's all about knowing where and how the injury originates. More on that later. And this is an exercise that is often skipped over, I think, in the planning phases of these types of projects. But the benefits of undertaking this exercise are multiple, perhaps most notably because it ensures that each metric actually earns its place in the model. And we don't just add some of them into the mix because we've been collecting them already for other purposes. Another reason for this exercise is that it helps to avoid the inclusion of metrics that are measuring very similar things, and as a result are highly correlated. For example, multiple metrics derived from athlete tracking data. Now, of course, the data area in general is moving in the right direction. Technology is progressing rapidly, and that should mean that we will see resulting improvements in injury prediction modeling simply as a function of these developments. But we also need to pause and consider this from a human perspective and not just a predictive one. Particularly the potential cost of data collection in terms of time, the staff required to operate devices that produce these metrics, along with the financial cost. I've said in a few forums recently that many sports scientists working in professional sport these days have essentially become glorified technology operators. And that is going to be an ongoing challenge the more data that we continue to collect unless we somehow achieve full automation. And of course, most importantly of all, we want to obtain this data without excessively encumbering the athlete. There is an upper limit to what athletes will continue to wear or the tests they will expose themselves to without seeing a direct and somewhat immediate benefit. The question is also a philosophical one. How much instrumentation do we want in a sport before it fundamentally changes the experience of the athlete or indeed the very nature of that sport? So when we talk about quality data, it's more than just the accuracy. As always, we need to consider the athlete at the top of our list. The next part of the pipeline to discuss is the analysis. A whole range of statistical methods and machine learning algorithms have been used in modeling injury. Far too many to discuss in detail here. This area is perhaps the one that has seen the most focus on in the literature, which I actually find interesting as I think this space is in reasonably good shape, and not necessarily that new and improved algorithms will be the catalyst for injury prediction systems becoming viable. Having said that, there are a number of considerations, perhaps better framed as operational rather than methodological, that are crucial to have answers to. The most fundamental of these relates to how the model or algorithm provides the prediction. Most notably, it's important that the method employed matches and is compatible with the action of the end user. For example, a regression algorithm might try to predict a continuous variable, 
maybe in this case, injury risk portrayed on some kind of scale. A classification algorithm may try to allocate athletes into injured or non-injured groupings. But does that actually match the action of the end user? In practice, a viable injury prediction system needs to not only predict the likelihood of injury, but also inform the user on what to do about it. If it doesn't, then it's only helping with part of the decision-making process. I'm astounded by how little this point is discussed, as it's absolutely inescapable. For example, instead of stating that a given athlete has a 30% probability of being injured on a given day, in order for a system to be of real use, it needs to go beyond that and recommend what the athlete and or practitioner should do about it, whether that's completely abstain from training, undertake some form of modified activity, or better yet, act in a way that could actually help to reduce the risk for the days and weeks to come, whether that be around diet, sleep, or something we haven't discovered yet. To that end, what I described there sounds like the very definition of a recommender system, but the point is that it isn't something that an algorithm can do unassisted. So when I hear some people talking about wanting injury prediction, they're actually really talking about wanting better knowledge on how to improve athlete health and wellness. At this point, it's also worth noting that as long as the decision on how to act on a prediction is not automated and still lands with a human, be it the athlete or the practitioner, then the injury prediction system that we develop needs to match that. There's no point having a highly accurate prediction model if under certain context it's overruled or contradicted. Sure, we can and should evaluate the model performance in isolation of the resulting human action, but if we're going to bring it into practice, then the entire pipeline of decision-making also needs to be evaluated. And that includes considering the subsequent actions, specifically whether the practitioner acted in ways that they wouldn't have done so if the system did not exist. It's perhaps an ongoing debate about whose responsibility in the sporting organisation this action is. More on all of this later. Another consideration at the analysis stage relates to the features included in the model. A feature being the most predictive does not necessarily mean that it is causing the injury to occur. It's also not synonymous with that feature being the most able to be manipulated or intervened on. If we go back to part one of this episode when I discuss the potential role of genetics, this represents a good example of this. We can't necessarily intervene on this feature, so how do we act on this information? Earlier on this episode when I discussed data, I mentioned the need to understand how each feature behaves before being included in a model. But part of the analysis stage should also include determining how features behave when considered together in a model, which has historically been assessed in statistics through processes such as internal consistency. Given the analysis options available to us now, we can also assess how certain features interact non-linearly in different scenarios. Although not the only option, for this latter purpose, machine learning algorithms have become a popular choice. But it's notable that machine learning is not designed around determining causation. These algorithms essentially work through pattern recognition. For example, let's say that we implement a decision tree algorithm, of which I am sure many of you are familiar with. And let's say that the model has determined that the risk of an athlete being injured is higher if their load is between 100 and 200 units, and their score on some physical test is lower than X. What do we do about it? Now, the default response is often to say, well, let's go lower than those thresholds, and that will reduce the risk. But how much lower, and is the interaction between those two factors linear? Do they offset each other? And what is the effect of following the same course of action over time? 
answer to these questions often comes with further interrogation of our data and the features that we extract from them. Upper and lower limits, how inherently variable they are. Of course, this is all just good practice, but not always done well, so important to highlight again here. Another fundamental question relating to the analysis is whether we actually need to know how a prediction is generated. For example, a lot of the most popular machine or deep learning approaches that are being used in entry prediction now essentially operate as black boxes. To elaborate, the way in which the prediction is generated by these algorithms is sufficiently complex that it isn't directly interpretable by a human end user. So a question emerges, how do we operationalize a model whereby we can't pinpoint a factor or even two factors as the reason as to why you need to change something to limit the risk of injury? Is not knowing this information okay? It's an ethical question as much as a methodological one. We probably have a human inclination to say, no, it's not okay. Because without knowing why exactly our model says an athlete has a 90% probability of injury, why should the practitioner truly accept responsibility for any actions that they make based on this prediction? This is a question that all AI should face as it becomes more pervasive in the coming decades. But the counter argument is that we already accept all sorts of recommendations in our lives without specifically knowing how each and every one is generated. I wonder how well governing and accrediting bodies are prepared for this notion of absolved responsibility from practitioners. But given the growing global focus on athlete rights around their data use and duty of care, this will probably emerge as a hurdle to be overcome by injury prediction projects in the not too distant future. So the answer to the question of whether your project needs to know or not might relate to how you intend to use it. If you're solely wanting to reduce the incidence of injury at your organization through following a model prediction, and that's the end of the problem for you, then output from a black box might be fine. But if you ever want to intervene on the factors that are leading to the injury, then this simply won't work. The next stage of the pipeline is judgment. Specifically, what decision is made and executed in response to the prediction? And you might notice in this episode that I've referred to injury prediction as a project or system rather than solely referring to the model. And that's intentional because, as I hope I've emphasized, it's actually only quite a small part of the process. How the practitioner decides to act, how they ultimately do act, which are both judgments, and then how the action is evaluated and connected to the resulting health of the athlete which are both evaluations, are all far larger questions which interestingly seem to command less attention presently. So let's look at the first part of judgment, which relates to the output of the model and then how the practitioner decides to act based on that output. If we cast our minds into the future, we would perhaps envisage that a fully functioning AI solution to injury would be able to completely dictate the type and volume of activity that an athlete performs in order to mitigate their risk of injury, along with what foods they eat and how much they rest. But for not just technical reasons, but also ethical ones, let's say that world is still a little way off. In that case, there is still going to be an interaction between the output of the prediction and how the athlete and or practitioner subsequently decides to act on that output. And this to me raises one of the more perplexing aspects about the rise in popularity of injury prediction, which is that it's predicated on the idea that improving the decisions of practitioners is one of the most important things we can do to help stop injuries. And if there's any real evidence around this being the case, then I certainly haven't seen it. 
It's perhaps another example of humans overstating their ability to understand and influence a complex system in trying to produce an outcome they really have limited control over. It also seems bizarre that many have run headlong into this area when they already may have been making sufficiently appropriate decisions around athlete healthcare to start with. Having said that, perhaps the lowest hanging fruit for judgment in injury prediction is simply testing who is making the better decision, model or practitioner. But of course that needs time, longitudinal trials to compare about how each perform in different contexts, and to obtain sufficient volume of data to be really clear on who is the better judge. But we may also need to assess ethically whether we're happy to run such a trial, particularly if one of the options is clearly performing better than the other. Would we be negligent in our level of care towards an athlete by continuing to follow a human decision if a model was shown to be clearly more accurate? And is sport even a suitable testing ground for this? Yet again, these are fundamental questions for sports to consider. A second low-hanging fruit revolves around the refinement of practitioner intuition, particularly in a case where the model does outperform human judgment. As per the above example, this would entail comparing practitioner predictions alongside model predictions, whilst also providing the practitioner with feedback on their judgments. Assuming that the model is more accurate, and as I said, that is an assumption, these could be used to profile the practitioner's behavior over time. For instance, which features do they weight more heavily than the model? Which do they discard? Do they change their behavior or level of conservatism at different stages of a season or when dealing with different athletes? Good models constantly reiterate themselves and theoretically should perform better over time. Humans can be no different, even if this isn't always the case. It's sometimes simply just not being organized enough to track this information that stops us from building this unique profile of the human decision maker over time. But for a small amount of effort, it can produce incredible value. Now, it's also very unlikely that the action of the human user will always match the model prediction. And it's also unlikely that the judgment that the practitioner makes initially will always match their consequent action. They may experience the pressure of others, for example, and act in a way that is different to their initial intuition. It's tempting to see these scenarios as human flaws, as is often done so in the literature. For instance, that these practitioners are unreliable judges. But although that sometimes is the case, a lot of the time it's actually because the person is acting on other contextual information that the model may not be privy to. For example, that the athlete undertook some form of activity that isn't accounted for by the model. And this again provides further evidence of the importance of defining this comprehensive, conceptual, unattainable model up front that I talked about earlier. That way, if a practitioner acts against the recommendation of a model, we may be able to pinpoint why. Maybe they're considering the influence of something that our model isn't able to measure yet. Another reason that we sometimes see a mismatch in judgments and action relates to how humans operationalize predictions. For instance, how should the typical practitioner view a 30% risk of injury versus 40%? Sure, analytically speaking, we have techniques such as receiver operating characteristic curves to help guide this process, but they only deal with the risk of making the decision, not the reward. Remembering that as we discussed last episode, there is always an opportunity cost to making any decision. Also, humans often struggle to understand variability in predictions. For example, how should a 30% risk with a prediction interval of 15% be interpreted and acted upon? How would a smaller prediction interval of, say, 5% change that judgment, if at all? 
We have a preference for single numbers. They're easier to understand and communicate. But just like the weather forecast, they have a level of confidence to them that should not only be reported, but also understood. I talked towards the end of part one about the importance of using a wide range of metrics to evaluate an injury prediction model. What is predominantly seen now in the literature is the reporting of conventional metrics that we'd usually see in the valuation of most prediction models. Things like classification accuracy, ROC curves, error, true and false positive rates. The inherent flaw in looking at the former in particular has been highlighted already in certain commentary. It certainly isn't common for the majority of athletes to experience a new injury even once every 100 days, meaning that even a baseline acceptable prediction model would need to be accurate at least 99% of the time in order for it to be useful. A negative likely outcome of a model predicting injury more regularly than this is almost certainly going to lead to more conservative behaviour from the practitioner and consequently lead to a reduced level of activity for that athlete. It doesn't ever seem to result in an increase for some reason. These false positives are in and of themselves interesting because they're predicated on this notion that either most injuries are caused by overuse or overtraining, and the athlete doing less somehow helps to reduce this risk. Which again, with certain injuries in many sports, there is absolutely no evidence for. In fact, there is more likely to be evidence to the contrary. So in evaluation of the system, we need to move beyond simple numbers around model performance and also evaluate what the athlete is doing instead of training or competing as planned. And then we need to connect that to its impact on their performance over time, good, bad or indifferent, which although is difficult, is nonetheless essential in order to properly evaluate the system. I will say it again, there is always an opportunity cost with these decisions. So then, how can we ever know that our injury prediction system has really worked? A causal link between the system and a reduction in injury rates is really the only way. But straight away we reach a problem with this pursuit. We cannot ever prove that an injury that was about to happen was prevented unless we actually allow for it to occur, in other words a true positive. This would consist of an athlete being predicted by a model as likely to be injured if they carry on business as usual. A decision would then need to be made for that prediction to be ignored and let the athlete train or compete as normal in order to see whether the model is proved right. But that of course would be an untenable situation ethically, to let the athlete carry on when we believe them to be at risk. And why would we bother to have the model in this case if we're going to ignore it? Further, it shouldn't need to be said that athletes are not guinea pigs to be experimented on. Some player unions in professional team sports are very quick to jump on teams or leagues looking to add the smallest piece of new technology, all under the guise of protecting the athlete. So it does make me wonder why we haven't heard more from them on this. Returning again to complex systems, it's interesting to note that a system may succeed in preventing injury just through its very existence, through ways that we did not intend or expect, and regardless of whether it's even accurate. We see these unintended consequences all the time in sports. One such example might be changing a rule in a team sport to increase scoring, which may lead to a change in the movement requirements of players, resulting in altered desirable physiological traits of athletes. In the injury prediction system, simply by the practitioner possessing a number assigned to an athlete's risk may serve to anchor their intuition, thereby altering their base level of risk aversion and making them more conservative. 
Again, anecdotally, I've never seen this phenomenon go the other way, which I suppose tells us something about human behavior. At an organizational level, it appears that in order for an injury prediction system to be worth implementing, it needs to be demonstrably better than what humans are capable of presently, which as I've already stated in many cases is probably unknown. But how much better does it need to be in order to justify the time and money spent on it? Is the refinement of human intuition sufficient reason enough to implement these systems? These are questions without firm answers and of course will differ between organizations. So where to from here? It's tempting to look at our own small role in sections of this work and consider it to be in good shape. For example, I've seen firsthand that highly accurate models explanatory of injury are available right now, but hopefully I've made a fairly strong case over the last half an hour that that is nowhere near enough. So like many of the most challenging problems in sport, injury predictions simply won't become viable without collaboration between people from a wide range of disciplines. If we consider everything that has been discussed in the last two episodes, it should be clear that there is a need for input from many. Innovators and engineers in designing new and improved technology. Computer scientists and analysts to leverage the latest computing and deep learning. As well as sports practitioners and coaches to be willing to challenge their current practice and adopt new methods. But it also needs researchers to ensure the quality of the evidence through conducting appropriate trials. People from operations research and the decision sciences and all hopefully under the watchful eye of governing bodies to ensure that the athletes are not being treated as lab rats. You might consider some of the challenges I've raised as almost insurmountable, and indeed some presently may be. Complex simulations such as those offered through the use of digital twins may present a way forward to some of these. But despite this, there remains a host of areas that remain underexplored and capable of being investigated now, particularly around the interaction between model prediction and consequent human decision and action. Sports involving relatively closed or consistent environments with repetitive single movements may end up being those that first start to see real progress. My mind turns to running, golf and baseball pitching as examples. With that, we reach the end of this two-part episode on how injury prediction actually could work. I hope that you've found it useful. On reflection, I imagine that this episode may require multiple listens, and I will perhaps look to make the transcript available online or turn this into a published article. I'd like to also make my motivations for this episode clear at this point, as I had a few questions from listeners on this after part one. For the record, I don't work on injury prediction in my research, and I also don't consult to any team or company on this area either. My interest is firstly academic, and secondly with respect to promoting what I think is good sports science. We've seen in the past that poor execution of ideas has the potential to delegitimize a lot of the good that we see in sports science, and I've seen a lot of good people lost to the industry recently as a result. On a related note, the more organizations are running headlong into spending on systems they know little about, instead of investment into staff, sends a message to their best and brightest. We don't value you as much, and we also don't trust your ability to make good decisions. And based on what I'm seeing, sport is not in a position to lose any more of its best people. Hence, my motivation here is really focused on improving practice across the board. 
So, to finish, a summary of the current state of play. The reality right now is that I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that anyone has addressed all of the challenges outlined today. I also don't believe that the technology is of a sufficient standard yet to make actual injury prediction viable. And as a result, for the moment at least, I remain as sceptical as ever on any grandiose claims coming from companies or researchers in this space. As a result, I can't say that even if you find answers to all of the questions posed here, then it will lead you to the holy grail of viable injury prediction. But it will certainly help. I look forward to seeing how this area develops in the coming years. Until next time, I'm Sam Robertson and this has been One Track Mind. One Track Mind is brought to you by Track and Victoria University. If you care about sport and its future as much as we do, please support us by subscribing, leaving a review on iTunes, or recommending the show to a friend. It only takes a minute and it really makes a difference. If you want more where this came from, follow us on social media on Twitter or LinkedIn at TrackVU, at Instagram at track.vu, or head to our blog at trackvu.com. Thanks for listening to One Track Mind. See you next time.